Welcome back to the latest episode of Talk IP with RNG. My name's Rebecca Conroy, and today we're joined by Alison Benjamin from Urban Bees. Alison is a best-selling author and bee champion who, after a 20-year career as a Guardian journalist, is now pursuing her passion for bees by working with Urban Bees, the company that she co-founded with her husband, Brian McCallum. She is retrained as a professional horticulturalist and is using her knowledge about bees and plants to create bee-friendly spaces on office rooftops where different species of bees can forage and nest. She also leads bee safaris in Regent's Park, gives talks to architects about designing cities for bees and writes a monthly newsletter with handy tips for identifying and helping bees called The Buzz. It's great to be chatting today, Alison, and have you here on the Ready and Grows podcast. Welcome. Can you start by telling me a little bit about urban bees? Yes, so... um. As you mentioned, it's a it's a company that I co-founded with my husband about over 10 years ago now um, to help bees in urban environments. Um, So we work primarily with companies and that's to improve planting and habitat and to raise awareness among the staff and the clients about how important bees are for biodiversity and nature and things like food security tackling even tackling the climate crisis and also for our mental well-being too and uh, we've created lots of resources to help people help bees themselves things like our trees for bees and our plants for bees month by month guides and uh, our bee calendars and postcards with information about different types of bees thanks for that that all sounds great where is the best way for our listeners to access such resources So people can go to our website, which is www.urbanbees.co.uk, and there's a a wealth of information on that that website that people can download lots of information there. And I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. Since we are in the realms of the Ready and Grows podcast, could you explain how you're working with us? Yeah, so we've embarked on a really exciting year-long partnership with with you guys, haven't we, to raise awareness Mm -hmm. about bees among staff and clients. And we've run some workshops already in London and Cambridge, introducing staff to some of the 270 bee species in the UK, showing them how they can help bees at home by planting flowers with lots of nectar and pollen that flower sequentially throughout the year. Um, And the Munich office has also... um, been able to dial in and take part as well which is great because lots of the same bee species are in Europe and the same sort of plants as well and um, during the autumn we're going to be running some DIY workshops constructing wooden bee hotels so that staff can put those in their gardens ready for spring um, for the solitary bees and then um, we're looking to co-produce some materials as well to help staff and clients to identify bees and to um, help them because one of the things we've encouraged staff to to do is to participate in a citizen science program which is collecting data on bumblebees across the country so we're going to produce some resources to help them to do that Um, and then we're also going to hopefully in the future work with you guys and the landlord of the London office here in Whitechapel um, to give it a bit of a bee makeover and, and make it better for bees. It definitely has been a fun few months working with you. 
you mentioned the possibility of an office B makeover. What realistically does that look like and what does it entail? So a B makeover is when you go in and you have a look maybe at an office rooftop, which maybe doesn't have very much on there. It's grey, maybe it's got the air conditioning system. And we're looking at what we could realistically put up there in terms of planting and nesting sites um, for the bees to have something to eat and to nest in central London. And we're trying to create um, bee lines across cities so the bees have kind of points where they can stop and feed along between maybe different parks and green spaces. Um, and so we'd look at the plants that work for, you know, the conditions on a rooftop and are also good for bees too. Um, and it also depends if if staff are going to use the rooftop, then we make it look nice for staff too. But if it's just the bees, then maybe it can be a bit wild or we can sort of wild. <laughs> it's quite incredible that you mentioned there are 270 bee species in the UK. I must admit, I only thought there was one before I'd attended your first R&D talk. Yes, well, that's quite common. Most people think there's just one type of bee and that it's stripy and it stings and it makes honey and it lives in a hive um, with a queen and worker bees. But that's actually, as you discovered, that's just one species. That's the honeybee. Um, and it actually looks a bit like a wasp, doesn't it? <laughs> um, so the one that actually most people see in their garden and the one that you probably thought of when you thought there's only one bee is actually a bumblebee, the fluffy, sort of cute round ones that we see bumbling around. Um, and there are actually 24 different species of those, those fat, fluffy ones in the UK, um, 250 of those worldwide. But they don't make honey and they don't live in a hive. Some of them aren't even stripy, um, but they are like honeybees in that they live socially in a colony with a queen and workers and drones and they divide up the labour in the colony. So you've got the queen laying the eggs, you've got the worker bees, the female worker bees going out and collecting all the food, the pollen and the nectar to bring back to feed the babies. And then you've got the males whose job is to carry on the genes by having sex with new virgin queens from other colonies. Um, so um, yeah, so they're the honeybees and, and the bumblebees. OK, but that still leaves more than 200 bee species that aren't honey or bumblebees. What are they? <laughs> well, yeah, most people have never heard of most of the bees, which are actually what are called solitary bees. So some of them are only tiny, just a few millimetres long. Some of them are black and shiny and look more like little flies. Others are a bit bigger and, and look more like the bumblebees. There's a lovely one called the hairy footed flower bee, which is very cute and comes out early in the spring. Um, but what's different with them is that, as their name suggests, they live alone. They're solitary. They don't have a queen. They don't have workers. There's just one female and a male that mate. Um, and then the female goes off and finds a nest on her own. Um, they often live next door to each other, a bit like us. So sometimes you wouldn't think they were solitary because there's a lot of solitary bees all in one bank of soil or sand um, or in a bee hotel but they're actually yeah they are solitary so you've got the female going off she's mated she's creating a nest she's laying her eggs and she's collecting pollen from the plants to feed um, the babies she takes it back to, takes the pollen back to the nest and when she's laid enough eggs and collected enough of the pollen she seals the nest 
and then she actually goes off to die and she leaves the egg to develop into a larvae to eat the pollen and then that uh, larvae it pupates a bit like um we tend to learn at school don't we about the caterpillar turning into the butterfly so it's similar all bees they go through a stage where they go from a larva an egg a larvae a, a pupate and they have a cocoon and then these solitary bees they they stay in that cocoon stage for a, a number of months over the winter and then they emerge next spring or summer and then the whole kind of cycle happens again um and there are over um so over 200 of those species, different species in the UK, and 20,000 worldwide, these solitary type bees. So they don't make honey. Um, they're often known by their nest making skills. So you've got things like plaster bees that plaster the cavity of their nests with a cellophane like substance that protects the eggs. You've got mason bees that plug the tubes of the nest with mud carpenter bees that use their mandibles to make nest in wood and lots and lots of mining bees that burrow into the ground to make their nest. Um, so yes, there are all these different types of bees. So there are so many species with so many differences. What really makes a bee a bee? That's a really good question. <laughs> so, um, so what they all share is that they're all incredibly important pollinators. So they co-evolved with flowers about 100 million years ago. Before that, the flowers would reproduce through wind pollination. And then the flowers developed um, lots of ways to attract insects to come and pollinate them instead, because that was a more efficient way of doing it. So the flowers, um, the plants produce flowers with beautiful perfumes and lovely colours and this sweet nectar drink. For the bees as their reward for coming in to pollinate them. Um, so yes, the bees, um, they co-evolved to just eat the pollen and the nectar. And the bees also have quite hairy bodies, even the ones that look quite shiny and metallic, the little ones, they're actually quite hairy if you look at them under a magnifying glass. And the hairs on their body are positively charged and the pollen has a negative charge which means that they attract each other and the pollen grains actually leap onto the bee's body when the bee comes to visit to collect the pollen and the nectar. Um, and they collect the pollen to take back to the babies, but as they're collecting it, they either collect it on their hind legs in pollen baskets or on something called a scoper, which is sort of dense hairs, a bit like a feather duster. <laughs> and they have that either on their back legs or under their abdomen and while they're collecting it they they're sort of spreading it around when they visit the different flower heads um so they're incredibly important pollinators that's really what they will share mm. thanks to you our listeners are now well informed so what's the best thing we can do to help bees well bees the wild bees the solitary bees the bumblebees what they really need is two main things they need the food um the pollen and the nectar and they need places to nest so we can easily feed bees. What we need to do is find things that we can plant, even if we've just got a window box or a few pots, just some flowers that if you go to just to the garden centre, you can see the different flowers are, are flowering at different times of the year. And if you can, and often they have a, um, a label on them now that says that they're bee friendly. 
Um, and if you can plant some of those, so you've got something that's always in flower for bees, that will really help. And different types of flowers help different bees. So some bees have got long tongues and need more like bell-like flowers. Others have got short tongues and maybe open like daisy-like flowers, that type of thing. Um, trees and shrubs are really good as well if you've got a bigger garden. Um, and then we can think about places for them to nest. So one of the easiest things to do is just not to be a very neat gardener. Don't be too tidy. Don't clear up too much. So if you've got a pile of leaves in the autumn, just leave the pile of leaves. You might get bumblebees um, nesting underneath. Um, you might get them nesting under your garden shed if you don't clear, clear away there. Plant stems, you might get solitary bees in the plant stems if you leave those and don't cut them all down. And you can obviously buy bee hotels now and you can put those up in a sunny spot and you might get the cavity nesting, red mason bees and leafcutter bees. So it's really all about the food and all about the nesting sites. I've noticed you haven't mentioned having a beehive and becoming a beekeeper. Surely that would help bees. Well, it's interesting you say that. That's what a lot of people think. And actually, I became a beekeeper myself about 15 years ago for that very reason. I thought, oh, I want to help bees. I'll have a hive and and uh, look after some honeybees. But actually, that does nothing, absolutely nothing to help all the other bees, you know, those 269 other species of bee. Um, and actually, we now have research that shows in towns and cities where there's a high density of hives, that actually those honeybees can be detrimental to the health of the wild bees because they can outcompete them for food. Because in one hive of honeybees, you've got 50,000 honeybees. Um, so that's a lot of hungry mouths to feed. Um, and research coming out of Paris and and Canada shows that actually, you know, can be uh, detrimental to the other the other bees around the solitary bees. And that can be applied to London as well, because, um, you know, we have a lot of companies now mistakenly thinking that to be sustainable and to boost biodiversity, they have to have a hive on their roof. And that's actually one of the worst things they can possibly do. You know, sustainability is all supposed to be about reducing a company's negative impact on the environment but actually having a hive can you know have a really negative impact on the wild bees um so beekeeping is a fascinating hobby i don't want to put people off that but you have to think about you know is this the best place to have a hive and also the reason why you're doing it if you're having a hive to save bees it's actually that's really the wrong reason you have to have a honey honey bee hive to make lovely honey really you know in the same way that you wouldn't really think about having chickens to save wild birds you have chickens for eggs it's the same thing honeybees are actually livestock they're looked after by a beekeeper it's a bit like having yeah a bit like having chickens so honeybees should only be kept really for honey not at all for saving bees that's a really important message that you know lots of people don't understand um so I would say, please, please, please only become a beekeeper if you want to have honey and if you're in an area where there is a, you know, a large density of, of hives and there's plenty of forage around during the year for all the bees. Um, and the best thing to do if you want to save the bees, as I've said, 
is creating the gardens where the bees can come and forage and creating the habitat for the wild bees because it's those wild bees, those bumblebees and those solitary bees that need our help. You mentioned bees are important for food security. Could you expand on this a little? Yeah, so what I mean by that is, um, you know, I mentioned that bees are incredibly important pollinators. So what they're doing when they pollinate the plants is that they're allowing the plants to um, set seed or if it's um, a fruit or vegetable to actually produce the fruits and the vegetables. Um, and some fruits and vegetables are sort of 100% reliant on insect pollination. They won't produce the fruit and vegetable without the insect. And it's usually some kind of bee. And others, it's um, the quantity and the quality um, is, is very, very much affected by pollination. So you get much less, um, you get a much less yield and you get inferior fruits and vegetables without the bees. Um, so they're very important for fruits and vegetables, but we need to think about them in a wider sense than that, because, you know, if we think about just things like, I don't know, having a pizza you know the tomatoes are pollinated by bees but also the cheese as well because obviously cheese isn't pollinated by bees but the cows the dairy cows they feed on alfalfa or on clovers that are pollinated by bees so they're important there um things like almonds if we think about lots of us are now drinking almond milk well without bees you'd have no almonds so no nuts and so no almond milk um, bees are also important for sunflower and rapeseed oil, so all the vegetable oils, and even coffee. Imagine not having your coffee in the morning. Well, actually, it's a little solitary bee in tropical countries that pollinates the coffee bush that produces the beans that make our coffee. So without the bees, we'd have very much less coffee. It'd be inferior quality and much more expensive. So really important, but even not just for us, they're really important for um, the food in the whole food chain. So they're pollinating the trees and the bushes that also produce the nuts and the seeds and the berries that the, the birds and the smaller mammals eat, and they're then predated by creatures further up the food chain. So just that sort of linchpin in nature, really, really important. I simply had no idea of the importance bees and similar pollinators had on food security, a topic that we've all been made aware of due to recent global events. Another pressing topic is the current climate crisis. Do bees have a role to play in this too? Yes, they do actually, because we're now getting to understand that um, that nature can mitigate against um, lots of the problems of climate change. But we need a more resilient nature to be able to do that. Um, so if nature is, is strong, you know, if we've got um, lots of trees, they can cool down the planet. If we've got uh, more diverse natural forests, they don't burn in the way that we've seen those recent forest fires all over Europe. A lot of that's to do with the way that we manage the land. Um, heat is a as a natural carbon sink. Um, basically, the more flora there is, the more land can absorb things like water, can reduce carbon emissions, can um, make places cooler. Um, so there are lots of reasons why we need strong areas of lots of flora and 
and flora is very much dependent on bees and other insects in terms of pollinating it so it can set seed and, and can reproduce. So, yeah, we really need the bees to be part of that mix if we want to have a strong nature to mitigate some of the worst impacts of climate change. You've also mentioned bees can be good for our mental well-being. How so? I know it might sound a bit far-fetched, but um, I don't know if you remember, but during COVID, you know, a lot of us suddenly for the first time became aware of the buzzing bees in the garden and the the birds song because suddenly there wasn't all the traffic and we weren't going to work. We, and um, we sort of slowed down a bit. And lots of people were saying that they, you know, that was they felt that was really good for their mental well-being to suddenly sort of reconnect with sort of nature on their doorstep. And um there's um there's a term called biophilia, which um a very famous late um US biologist, the pulp Pulitzer winning um, biologist E.O. Wilson, he coined this term biophilia, which he believed was humans have this natural affinity with the natural world around it. Um, it's sort of a genetically determined affinity. And he felt that with the modern world that was being impacted in a detrimental way, that we'd lost that connection with the natural world. and. And that was having um, that was having a detrimental impact on our sort of psychological and our our um, de development generally. And I think we sort of came to realise that in COVID, how important nature was, and to get out in nature. And also, while the whole world seemed to be collapsing around us, nature was carrying on, and the seasons were carrying on. We had that lovely spring and. Those sort of things made people much more aware of, of how important, you know, our connection with nature is. And I've always thought since I became interested in bees that just sort of slowing down and watching a bee on a flower, you're watching something that's been played out for like 100 million years. And it's just amazing. And you sort of you can tune in. And I think it's it's very good to slow down and and reconnect in that way. And I gave um I actually gave a TEDx talk a number of years ago about if we create cities that are good for bees then they're going to be good for us too and in that talk I very much explained that if you think about it you know a city designed for bees it would have lots of blossoming blossoming trees and beautiful shrubs and flowers throughout the year and that would look lovely for us but it would also be um, improving air quality it would be making the city cooler in the summer it would be better able to absorb you know, flood water and carbon, and obviously it will be feeding bees too. So I was sort of saying if we're creating places that are good for bees, they're good for us too in many ways. And that's also to do with our sort of mental well-being. When you put it that way, it makes complete sense. <laughs> I have to admit, I like the sound of a city designed for bees. <laughs> and hopefully our listeners will um, look out for um, different species of bees on their next walk. Um, which really brings us back to urban bees. Um, what services do your team provide? Well, we've mentioned um, the bee makeovers. So yes, we like to go into companies and we like to look at what's available and how we could make it much better for bees, biodiversity and people too. 
Um, so we can create beautiful bee friendly gardens and nesting sites from scratch, or we can go in and we can transform something that's, that's already there, like a seed and roof, make it into a more thriving biodiverse roof for bees and other pollinators. We can work with existing gardeners to make offices better for bees and pollinators. And we love to engage with staff. So we love to do the lunch and learn sessions and introduce um, staff to all the different bees and how they can help them. Um, and yes, we can help companies in that way to become nature positive, to meet biodiversity goals and social value targets too. And all this without a honeybee hive. <laughs> Well, thank you, Alison. It's been a delight chatting to you today. Thank you for sharing your insights and tips. And we look forward to continuing to work with Urban Bees for many years to come. Thank you.